Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hi, Gary. Yeah, hi, guys. So some sad news in the world of rock in the last uh, week or so. Yeah, two huge ones. Yeah, Charlie Watts Charlie. And, and Lee Scratch Perry. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Charlie one did knock me for six, actually. I... You know, there are certain sort of things you grow up with in your life that, um, you know. Yeah, and it's like the Queen, just always there. Always there. They're constants. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, when one starts to go, you worry that the whole thing's about to fray, don't you? And that you're you're suddenly going to be the only grown up left in the room. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's true. Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. Um, <laughs> also, you know, some Scratch is one of those people who not so obviously, but so utterly sort of shapes the way everything we know sounds, you know? Yeah. You know, the COVID situation where musicians haven't been able to play has been also, I've been quite concerned during this period because, you know, whenever you walk on stage, as a, as, no matter what age you are, you're always 24, you know, and it keeps you yeah, in yeah, great yeah, vitality. It keeps yeah. you alive and youthful, you know. That's I mean, why Abra have got the right idea. Just put out 24-year-old them. <laughs> <laughs> and then do it forever. Anyway, this week we have the fabulous all-encompassing yeah. man of every hat. Stephen Wilson, yeah. I, I mean, for those who don't know his work, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, this man's got four Grammy nominations. He He's very, very famous for his remixing. I mean, he's the fl- holder of the flame of prog music, really. He's, he's remixed some of the great prog artists, King Crimson, Yes, Caravan, Jethro Tull, even Roxy Music. And he's had numerous bands that he's been famous in, especially Porcupine Tree. And as a solo artist. That's right. And we're going to ask him about all of it. So let's get him on. Welcome to The Rock and Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, that's it. Get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Hello, Stephen. Lovely to see you. Thank you so much. Hello, Stephen. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have you run out of proper pop stars then? You have to speak to me. <laughs> no, you tick, you tick actually more boxes than anyone. For us. Really? Yeah. Okay, I thought maybe you just exhausted your sort of mutual phone books, you know. <laughs> anyway, I'm very happy to you've be here. Thank you for having me. You've been on our list for a long time. Ian Anderson was on a, a couple of weeks ago, and we, we did spoke quite I heard fondly that. of you. Yeah. I've been down a rabbit hole. I mean, because there's just so there's just too much, Stephen. It's just, you know, you are the hardest working man in showbiz. 
Well, you know, I've always thought it's such a privilege and an honour to be able to do what we do professionally, you know, particularly in this day and age. It's like I don't want to forsake a minute of that sort of opportunity and that privilege in a way. So I just, I'm, I have a very strong work ethic. I get that from my dad, that's for sure. Because there's some geek on the internet who's put, I, I, he's mm. probably a very good friend of yours, but I'll call him a geek. And he's put together your discography and it's yeah. something like 950 pages. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, I've released far too much music. Far too much music. But that's, that's yeah. brilliant. I mean, you're kind of like the prince of prog, aren't you? You're unstoppable. Uh, who, funny enough, I believe you cite as an influence. I, I've become known as the Prince of Prog. Oh, you know, I thought because oh, I haven't coined that then. All right. <laughs> no, you haven't. No, well, I, I got crowned as the King of Prog at the Prog Awards a few years ago. And it was, you know, it's a lovely thing, you know. But obviously it's kind of only a small, well, it's, it's bigger than a small part, but it's only a part of what I do. But I think the stuff I've done in the progressive rock genre has definitely been the most successful. So kind of that's what people identify me as the most, for sure. But it's funny because it's called progressive rock and it's because... There was a whole branch of music, wasn't there, that happened in the 80s, where even people like King Crimson, it went from being prog to being sort of art rock. And that would have been Japan and people. Mm. And of course, you work with Barbieri for a long time. But you have a much broader palette, don't you? I mean, in that you follow the narrative of prog rock in album length things. But then you have much broader. I mean, there's also, yeah. especially on your later records, there's, I mean, brilliant. There's electro, there's kraut rock, funk. Yeah. I think there's an aesthetic which is something people associate with progressive rock, which is the idea of the music kind of telling a story over the continuum of an album. Yeah. And for me, you know, if that's the number one sort of hallmark of progressive rock, then yes, I've been doing that my whole life. But, you know, or at least my professional career. But, you know, there's a lot of things, as you kind of point out, that I've tried to cram in, you know, into yeah. that sort of in that context of the album as a sort of musical continuum, a musical journey. But I suppose people identify as progressive rock because it has kind of got that storytelling element to it, whatever I do. But has I mean, that. on your last album, Future Bites, you, you came mm. under some criticism from some of your staunch fans from the past didn't you for, for being a little too commercial but you've always had that ear for the hook like as guy pointed out i mean prince is one of my heroes he was the guy i had posters of uh, you know on my wall when i was a kid i grew up in love with the idea of you know that magical thing called pop music and i always thought that there was a very broad church for pop music i mean i remember buying pink floyd records and it said on the back file under popular do you remember that <laughs> oh, there was yeah, always that yeah. little legend on the back of those old emi records saying file under popular <laughs> music so that was pop too and growing up in a house where my mum would listen to you know those classic donna summer late 70s donna summer Giorgio yeah, Moroder yeah, records just, and yeah. yeah just phenomenal and she listened to stuff like the saturday night fever soundtrack and at the same time my dad was listening to dark side of the moon and tubular bell so to me it was all pop music. It was all this magical thing. And it was only when I kind of went to secondary school that I realised there were tribes. There were these tribes. There were the kids that only listened to the specials and Madness and the Scar stuff. And there were the kids that only listened to Gary Newman. And there were the kids that only listened to the new wave of British heavy metal stuff that was happening at that time too. And I just thought it was all magic. I thought it was all incredible. I loved it all. So you, you didn't ally yourself with anyone at that I, well, not really. I mean, you know, part of being a kid and getting into music is you're a bit snobby about things in a way oh, yeah. you kind of aren't when you grow up, you know. So I guess I was a bit snobby about certain things. But I've always loved ABBA, for example. You know, ABBA's Greatest Hits was always something that was around when I was a kid too, and, and I, I completely adored that music. So I think my fans are sometimes surprised when I tap in to some of that kind of more more kind of pop aesthetic uh, but as you kind of say, it's always been there, always been there but since I the beginning But I wonder if you know who you are at times, because you're you're in so many bands. There's so much diversity in what mm. you're doing, everything from drone to electronica to you covering Taylor Swift. Is there a confusion sometimes when you're making a track and you're, you've got it up on your computer in your studio? Do you know this is for No Man, this is for Porcupine Tree, this is this is for me? Well, it's a bit easier these days because a lot of those projects are collaborations. So if I'm writing with Tim, that's for No Man, you know. If I'm writing with Aviv, that's for Blackfield. If I'm writing on my own these days, de facto, it's going to be a solo track, you know, by default. So that makes things easier. There is a sort of a sound each of these projects has. Obviously, otherwise there'll be no point in having them, you know. So No Man is more ethereal and ambient. Blackfield is, is more kind of pop. Porcupine Tree was more kind of aligned itself more with metal and progressive rock. But in my solo project, it's kind of anything goes, really. 
probably sometimes it's too eclectic, you know, and certainly for the fans, I think they struggle sometimes with some of the sort of gear shifts and moves in direction that I, that I go through. I was wondering that because are there like, do you find there's distinct audiences for your different hats? I guess so. I'm not really, I try, you know, I try really hard to sort of not take any notice. I mean, I'm one of those people that I don't, I don't look at social media for a very deliberate reason which kind of taps into what you're saying is that I think everyone has an opinion of course they do and everyone has an agenda everyone has their musical taste their musical parameters they like to listen within and I think sometimes that can be very distracting I believe it's very important to make music in a vacuum in a way Mm. so I try to not overthink that too much for me the only thing that matters is that I'm excited by what I'm doing and that there is a feeling of that word again, progression. You know, I don't like the idea of repeating myself. So I'm always looking to change things up. And it's that David Bowie thing, you know, you kind of constantly wrong footing your fans and not that I'm comparing myself to the great man, but that idea of constantly reinventing yourself and confronting expectations rather than catering for them. And I think that was really always important to me, even growing up, the kind of people I was really influenced by, the Princes and the Bowies, even filmmakers like Stanley Kubrick, who, you know, barely ever made a movie in the same genre twice. And I love that. You know, I love that idea of sort of mixing it up album to album. You're not afraid, obviously, of being very, very musical. Some of that early work you did, you know, with with, there's a lot of jazz in there and, uh, you know, strange time signatures. I mean, that's really where your solo work was was born, isn't it? In much more complex music. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, I, I do love progressive rock and progressive rock is one of the, the styles of music I loved the most when I was a kid, obviously. In many ways, I think that is the foundation of my musical DNA. But at the same time, there was all this other stuff. I was a very precocious teenager. I was going into my local library and taking out Karl-Heinz Stockhausen records <laughs> and things like that and, and being fascinated by that stuff too, you know. Also very conceptual in its own way, you know, a composer that, that basically was all about ideas, you know. And I was fascinated by everything from, you know, Miles Davis records to Stockhausen records to pure noise records and ambient records. And, and in the 90s, I got into stuff like Aphex Twin, the sort of electronic stuff. And, and I love that too. He was a sort of new sort of prog, I always thought. That's kind of what I was going to say in a way. To me, that's all continuing that tradition. I mean, I listened to stuff like Massive Attack in the 90s and I thought, this is progressive rock. Radiohead, this is progressive rock. It's very weighty. It's very intellectual. Well, it's Billy Cobham Some playing of drums. dark. <laughs> I remember when the first Radiohead albums were coming out and everyone was saying, this is the new Pink Floyd. I mean, it's funny yeah. with Pink Floyd because I, yeah. I grew up not considering them as prog rock ever. I saw it as right, much too right. song orientated, too commercial. You know, they were, you know, unlike that, Yes yeah, or that's Genesis. Yeah, because it was that, it's that earlier period. That's why. It's because the breakthrough of the album, the big album, was actually short songs. It's, you've got to remember, if you were into them before, you just knew them for these, it was just mad, big, long pieces. But back to you as a teenager, your dad built you a vocoder. I would have thought a vocoder was pretty... Far down the shopping list for a teenager when you started yeah. music. Well, he was a very shy boy, Stephen. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I need a vocoder to talk at school. <laughs> well, I th- you know what? I think I'd probably heard it on Mr. Blue Sky and I said, uh, I want uh, that maybe. sound, Dad, you know, because I loved ELO when I was a kid as well. I still love ELO, amazing band, yeah. Well, I've got, you know, I've got loads of stuff he made for me. I've got like, um, if I'll show it to you, I just have to go across the room for, yeah, for 10 yeah, yeah. seconds. Yeah, while he's off, let me just... D- I want to show oh, you Oh, he's still this. talking. This... It's the four track. This is the four track. Fine, let me just put my headphones back on. Yeah, yeah. So can I just describe this for the audio listener? Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, about, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's about 18 inches long and, and, and 12 oh, inches wow. uh, wide. And it's, it looks like a cassette it's recorder. It's a cassette machine. But it is a cassette recorder. It's big. I never saw a four track So what like he that. did was... Oh, did your dad build no, that? Well, he made wow. it. Yeah, yeah. So what he did was he bought a cassette mechanism and then he bought a four-track record head from Maplins or wherever it was. Tandy, it would have been back then. Tandy, probably, <laughs> whatever it was, yeah. And it's got a little, you know, primitive mixer on it so I could mix. And that was one of the things, the first things my dad built for me, which enabled me to learn about 
overdub is a multi track recording. What year was the, would that have been? When I was like, I was about 12 or 13 years old. It was wow. insane. But yeah, did you yeah. have siblings? Yeah, I've got a younger brother, what do you get? my brother Roger. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question. That's a good question. Not your dad also made you a, f- a foot pedal, didn't he? A guitar effects pedal. He made me everything, Gary. He made me an echo machine. I haven't got it anymore. Unfortunately, it perished. But the echo machine he made me was he got two cassettes, standard cassettes. He cut the edges off both of them and glued them together to make like one really long, if you can imagine, an elongated cassette so that he could fit all the playheads in that created Oh, what? Right. Like a, a wham or copycat. a... Copycat. Um... Exactly, like an old copycat, yeah. But he figured out how to do it with cassettes I mean it looked like a Heath Robinson contraption but it worked but amazing think that that's what my son needs well you know I probably asked him for these things I probably figured out what the listening to these records as I was growing up I probably figured out what some of these sounds you know how they were created and then my dad I mean this is the 80s this is before you could just go on the internet and look up how do you make an echo machine he just had to figure out himself and he was an electronic engineer by, in his career, he was an electronic engineer. So he was kind of a genius and he just figured all this stuff out. You know, and he probably made things in a way that nobody had ever made them and no one has ever made them since. He should have been snapped up by Yamaha or something, or Roland. He should have been. Should have had know, his own he, space he, agency he, by now. <laughs> yeah, but he wasn't a businessman at all. He just loved making stuff. Is he no stuff. longer with us, yeah, Stephen, or is he still... He's not, no, he passed away about oh, 10 years ago. Yeah. And because and, and, I did read somewhere that you'd found this nylon string guitar. You know, this is the moment in the movie mm. where you go up into the attic and there is an mm. old beaten nylon string guitar. Yeah. You were sort of doing that sort of Sid Barrett rubbing metal on it. Completely. Can't you just learn chords like anyone else? <laughs> yeah, this is the bit in the interview when you're meant to say, Bert, we can play in a day. Yeah. No, 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 not at all. No, it was Pink Floyd's Amagummer and Karlheinz Stockhausen records taken out of the local library. I think I was always more fascinated just in sound design than I was in, you know, in being a musician. And that's, you know, when people describe me as a guitar hero or whatever, it's very flattering, but I just don't think, you know, I won't pick up a guitar by choice, you know, unless I need to use it for a song or for production I'm making. And I've, you know, I've toured with quote unquote proper guitar players and I see they they have this love affair with their instrument. They're kind of practicing every day. Mm. I'm quite happy not to pick up a guitar for six months if I don't need to. So would you say the keyboard is, is that where your chops really are? Because I was fascinated looking at your stuff as well, because I'm, I see occasionally in live stuff, you know, you've got some jazz chops going on on your piano. Is that really where you, you put your heart? I, I mean, I don't think I've got chops on anything, really. I, you know, I, I'm a kind of jack of all trades. I can do a little bit of everything. You know, I always thought of myself as a, I suppose much like yourself, Gary, a songwriter. You know, that was what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a songwriter. So I would go off and learn a little bit of bass and I would go off and learn a little bit of keyboards and a little bit of how to program drum machines and all that stuff. And I would just learn enough to be able to get what was in my head out into the real world. And that was so that the was complexity for me. of some of your music, because it always says written by Stephen Wilson on all the tracks, but the music is incredibly complex that's going on. How do you bring that to the musicians who are then going to do that wild stuff, which would intimidate me slightly that they can, you know, these guys are geniuses in their own guitar world or saxophone world or whatever. How do you present it to them and start to build a song? Well, I mean, obviously in the days before computer recording, I would have really struggled, but now it's just, you give them a MIDI file. So, you know, it's easy. I mean, I've lost count of the times I've been trying to, you know, describe what I've been doing and it's like this chord and and they'll say to me oh oh so you're playing a B flat diminished sus4 there and I'm like yeah whatever you know it's just I've kind of found it you but, know like an idiot I found this chord the demos? pretty elaborate yeah pretty elaborate I can't really present a song to somebody unless I know and this is why I have a reputation to a bit of a control freak as well I can't present a song to anyone unless I kind of know what everything's supposed to be doing so this is what the bass is going to do. This is what the drums are going to do. This is what the keyboards are doing. I, you know, I, I'm always fascinated by that thing of Bob Dylan, you know, whoever, just a guy going into a hotel room, coming out with a few, you know, I guess somebody like John Anderson from Yes would write like that. He'd just come into this band that were all infinitely superior to him as musicians with just this sort of strumming a few, or Roger Waters, yeah. you know, strumming a few chords, like here's the song. And then they would take that and they would kind of elaborate it. And that's not been me. I've always come in with the whole, you know, all the architecture's kind of there already, which annoys them, annoys them to death. I'm I bet sure. they've got nothing to do except copy your bits. Nothing to do, yeah. But I mean, also, it's impossible <laughs> to overstate, isn't it, how 
especially if you look at something like tubular bells, for instance, just how much easier it is to construct those pieces since computers. You know, you probably didn't have computers when you started, did you? No, I didn't. No, most of my sort of professional life, I've been working with computers, but certainly in the early days learning my craft. No, I mean, anything I get my hands on. It's interesting. I mean, you know, obviously computers make things everything easier these days, but the music doesn't get better, you know, and if anything... It's got worse, you know, and I think there's that thing, you know, for example, when I'm remixing some of these old classic records, I'm fascinated by the idea that they're not playing to a click track and that they are speeding up and slowing down all the time. You know, one of the beautiful things about some of the Yes albums and King Crimson albums is that Bill Bruford's timing wasn't that great. So he's kind of speeding up all the time, but it's exciting. It's really yeah. exciting. It's like they're about to go off a cliff. It's like they're but hanging say, on. Maybe his timing is great. Maybe that's how you should play. Maybe yeah. that's what music should be like, the ebb and flow. But you know what I mean? An absolutely yeah. classic yeah. thing you discover as soon as you go off click tracks, and you'll get this a lot with old prog, is the fact that halftime is not halftime. It's nowhere near as slow as halftime. It's just not as slow. Right, 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 and right. double time right. is not double time. It's nowhere near as fast as double right. time. It, but now, you know, it's right. interesting. But I, this is something that fascinates me is the mantle you take on of, of remixing this old work. Do you feel a great weight upon your shoulders doing that? I mean, especially the audiences you're dealing with who are kind of the yeah. most nitpicky, you know. Yeah, I think every every band has obsessive fans and they are the people that you're kind of doing it for. I mean, the one thing I kind of acknowledged to myself very early on getting into the remix work is that the people that are going to buy a remix, whether it's in surround sound or Dolby Atmos or just a stereo remix, are probably people that have bought that record at least three times already in their lives. You know, they bought the original vinyl when it came out, they bought the first CD edition, they bought the remastered CD with the bonus tracks and now they're going to buy the surround sound mix or the deluxe edition. And they know that album better than the artist, way better than the artist, because the artist hasn't listened to it for 30 years, 40 years. You know, I don't know about you guys. I never want to hear my work once I've finished it, you know. So these people, on the other hand, have been listening to it religiously. And I choose that word advisedly because, it, it, like you say, it is almost like they have this kind of religious mm. attachment to this. It's like a sacred mm. text to them. And I do feel a responsibility to those people. And, and I do try and do my utmost to be very, very faithful to the original mix decisions. Oh, that's what I wanted to ask you. Know, even you. Down to- is it literally just trying to, I don't know, like clean something up? Or are you thinking, what would I like this record to sound like? Or no, what makes it more no. modern, you know? No, that's certainly not the way I think. As For the aforementioned reason, really, is that I don't think any of these people that are going to buy these remixes want the music, quote unquote, changed yeah. or, God forbid, modernised. What they want is something that actually sounds very familiar to them. But also, paradoxically, they want to hear it in a different way. So that's where the surround thing comes in, because you kind of, all the EQs, all the reverbs, everything, all the compression, all of those things I recreate, even the placement in the stereo spectrum, I kind of get that right even before I start thinking about how I'm going to do it in surround. So there is a lot of honouring the original mix decisions in that And what would you do first when you put up these old multitracks? Do you do your surround first or do you do the stereo first? No, I'd actually say 90% of the work is recreating the stereo. And sometimes that is, I mean, when I did Seeds of Love for Tears for Fears, that was an absolute, I almost jacked that one in. Well, that's got a million things on it, hasn't it? It was crazy, guy. They recorded that on, I think, three digital Mitsubishi machines running in sync. So there was like 80, 90 tracks and there were different takes from different studios with different bands of the same song two, three years apart. And they'd used, you know, part of one performance from that year and then part of another performance from another. There's even a track on that album called Year of the Knife where they switch from one band. It's like that Strawberry Fields Mm. thing, you know, they switch from one band to a completely different band halfway through. Did you get a map? Did they tell you? No, they had no, they didn't remember. I had to figure all that out myself. And so it's constantly kind of, you know, A, being with the original mix, trying, oh, what's going on there, you know? And that was the hardest one I've ever done, no question. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com When you put up those, um, the ancient ones, I mean, the, you know, the ones we all know and love, you know, Aqualung or yeah. Close to the Edge or Court of the Crimson King, you get to hear the individual players for the first time. I mean, this is someone's dream, isn't it? I mean, fans would love to be in your shoes at that point. Mm. Are there some, some stuff you've ever put up and thought, wow, that's not how I expected it to be, or I can hear them talking, or these are ghosts in my house? Yeah, I mean, there's some quite surreal moments. Uh, what I would say is the novelty wears off quite quickly when you have to listen to 30 takes of, say, King Crimson <laughs> running through Epitaph. The novelty kind of wears off, you know, at least it does for me. I did a couple of Sabbath records late last year and I had to listen to about 30 takes of them going through Supernaut and Snowblind, you know, and it's just guitar, bass, drums. There's not even a vocal, you know, the vocal's been overdubbed later. But you're right, I think it's interesting. It's the studio chat that's the most fascinating stuff, you know. Really? Especially when you have Sabbath doing their thing. Yeah, yeah. All right, Tony. Yeah, was you know, it's like a Reeves and Mortimer <laughs> sketch, you know. That stuff's fun to hear for sure. A little window on the a, past. A yeah. friend of mine had, uh, years ago, had the multi-track of Fame. And the most extraordinary track on it was actually this track. There's like Lennon doing like a... Um, an offbeat reggae Oh, damn, I thought part. you meant Fame the Musical. I've lost interest no. now. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, he's literally, and he's just going, Fame, <laughs> just sort of singing along. And he's sitting there going, oh, my God, that's John Lennon. And it's just so yeah. ineffectual. <laughs> fame. Well, he's li- so, he'd live yeah. with it. Fame. <laughs> yeah. But what's amazing is that you became the absolute go-to guy for this stuff. So how did it all begin? Let's talk about that. Yeah. How did that yeah, yeah. Well, who first approached you and what was your first one? The first thing that actually happened was that in 2003, my band Porcupine Tree was signed to Atlantic Lava in America, and we got approached by a company called DTS. They wanted to do a surround sound mix of our album because they thought it would sound good in surround because it was very layered and all that stuff. So a guy called Elliot Shiner was employed to do that. He was kind of a legend in his own right. He's kind of engineered Steely Dan records and Eagles, and he'd made a name for himself doing surround. And he was hired to do the surround mix, and I knew nothing about it. I think like a lot of people, I imagined it was like when you go to the cinema and you hear things, spaceships whizzing around your head. I thought it was kind of a gimmicky thing. I didn't know what to expect. And then I heard the final result. We hired a studio in London to listen to what Elliot had done. And I really didn't like what he'd done because I'm a control freak and, you know, that's just me. And, but I loved the idea of it. So I persuaded the record company to fly me over there to sit with Elliot and to supervise a kind of sort of reworking of his mix. And in doing that, I got the bug to do it myself. So I came back, I kitted myself out with a 5.1 system and I started mixing everything, you know, I did from that point in 5.1. And lo and behold, a couple of years later, I got a Grammy nomination for one of my mixes of a Porcupine Tree record and people started to notice. And the first person that approached me was the manager of King Crimson asking if I was interested in doing some King Crimson 5.1 mixes. So to cut a long story short, those were the first I did and they were very well received. And one door led to another. Then Jethro Tull approached me. So to begin with, it was all from that genre. But you, you'd done a little obviously. work with, uh, with Robert Fripp yeah. before, hadn't you? Is that how the King Crimson connection had happened? Yes, there was a connection. I did know Robert and we shared management at 1.2. So there was connections there. You know, Robert was also very sceptical until he heard it. You know, and, and one thing I found time and time again is musicians, this is the same applies to Roland from Tears for Fears, Andy from XTC. They were all very sceptical. I said to their various managers or record companies, same with Ian Anderson, just let me do a couple of tracks and then just get them to come up to my studio and listen. And I guarantee you they'll be convinced. And so far I've not been proved wrong. I think when people hear their music done sympathetically, in surround it's like what's not to love you know uh, do, what I mean but do you have them insisting amazing. on being in the room or do you ban them I mean I got this vision of Ian Anderson being behind you being very Ian about you know oh, turn that down a bit or turn that up well I think Ian to begin with he was but then he sort of 
you know, he, he trusts me now. So I kind of do them and then he just comes along and listens to a couple of songs and says, yes, yeah, sounds good, you know. So he, he kind of trusts me. Andy is very hands-on. But then there are other people like the Yes guys who had no interest at all, just not interested. Wow. And I still to this day have no idea if any of them ever have ever heard the surround mixes. Wow. Which makes me a bit sad, really. Yeah, because you know, I've sat in your, yeah. I think I sat in your studio and I think you played me some of the, Gentle Giant you played me. Oh, come yeah. on, let's hear about that. Oh, like, about I mean, that. I was blown away by what, because they've got all this wonderful choral stuff in the Gentle Giant records. And, uh, yeah, and that was just spinning around my, you know, it was actually spinning around my head. <laughs> I mean, that's an example of a band that are perfect for surround because there's so much vertical complexity going on. You know, there's, so there's four guys or five guys. <laughs> vertical complexity. I'm going to use that so tonight. I mean, let me explain what I mean by with my wife. <laughs> but do you know what I mean by vertical complexity? No. So what I mean is that the complexity is in the fact that everyone is doing something different at the same time. Oh, okay. So Floyd, Floyd is an example of a band with horizontal complexity in the sense that what they're doing at any given moment is actually quite oh, simple. Okay. But the complexity comes in the way that the narrative is created, you know, the way they connect sections together. But General Giant's the opposite. They're all doing something completely different. It's that kind of you mean harmonically thing. Well, harmonically, melodically, rhythmically, you name it. They're all doing something different. It's just crazy. And then finally in surround, you can hear that. You can hear all the detail of the keyboard players. I, I don't know. They've all gone to music school and learned how to do this stuff. I don't get it at all, but it's incredible to hear it. Wow. <laughs> but the one and the one I thought was, you know, does touch on this mixture of different types of music you love is that you did the Roxy Music first album. Where, so we're, we've got art music yeah, and prog yeah. music and there is some sort of joint. I mean, as a kid growing up, I loved all of that. I'm very like you. Interestingly, yeah, though, yeah. Stephen, I keep talking to you as though we're the same age. It's because Guy and I bought the records that were coming out in front of us, and that included Dark Side of the Moon and included the first Roxy Music album, etc., etc. For you, you were a kid uh, of the past. I was a couple past. years behind. Couple years. <laughs> for you, you were a kid. You're, you were a kid of looking back, weren't you? That was quite unusual, even for your age. I mean, people hadn't started looking back. It's true, and it's, they say, don't they, that nothing sounds as passé as what was happening 10 years before. So, I mean, I'm growing up in the 80s, and it's like 70s music progressed. It's almost like outlawed, you know. But I was very lucky. I had a very good friend, my dad firstly, but also I had a very good friend who had a brother that was 10 years older than us, a friend of mine, Mark Gordon. His brother, Stuart, was 10 years older than us, and he had records by people like Hawkwind and Camel. <laughs> and it was like a whole different world to us, you know. But I love the, I mean, I grew up in the 80s. I love 80s music. I still love 80s music to this day. You know, if you talk, I can talk endlessly about Prefab Sprout and Talk Talk and Tears for Fears and, you know, what you guys were doing. That was very special to me. But at the same time, I was going back and discovering this music that was completely you know, off the radar in the 80s. It's funny, I speak to Nick, my bass player in the band, he, I mean, you know, he grew up listening, I mean, I'm sure you're the same, Gary, he grew up listening to stuff like Brand X oh, God, and yeah, Steely Dan. And, I saw Brand X play. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the reason I mention that is that he he comes out with Kajagoogoo and he has to pretend he doesn't like any Sorry, of that stuff. Sorry, this is Nick. Nick you're talking about, right? Nick. The Nick yeah, Beggs, yeah. yeah, he's he's like having to pretend, you know, that he doesn't know that stuff. But that's exactly what he's grown up listening to, you know. And you can hear it when you hear him play, you know, even on things like Two oh, Shoulders. Yeah, slap no, you can, and hear, stuff. you can hear it. Let's yeah. just talk about you that know. relationship because, and I'm sure you yeah. know, we've got we, we have another bass player in the room as well. <laughs> but Nick, you did actually reinvent his career for him because you know, coming out of Kajagoogoo, it's a bit like Saucer Full of Secrets reinventing my career. You know, here's a boy in a pop 80s band and, and now he's seen as one of the great prog bass players, you know? Well, he was well on his way already because he was playing yeah, with Steve Hackett. Yeah, he's been around for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he has. He'd been playing in Steve's band for a while. But I think he was a bit frustrated by the sort of, you know, doing uh, the old repertoire. He wanted to do some new music. So that was kind of the opportunity I gave him was to play new progressive rock or whatever. And he's the most it, constant yeah. sort yeah. of musical partner, really, in many ways, isn't he, in your solo career? Yeah, I mean, he he joined me in 2011, and I think he's he's been he's done every single gig ever since with me, and he's played on all the records. Yeah, uh, it's just a super nice guy lovely, as well. Easy to get we, on with. We, we have to fun, we have yeah. to go back to the beginning, really, of you with No Man and and your relationship mm -hmm. with Tim Boness, Tim Boness, uh, who yeah. we met actually because he he supported us at the Prog That's the Festival. Night of the Prog. Right, yeah, very yeah, lovely it, man yeah. with an yeah. extraordinarily yes. emotional voice. Yeah, and I, I particularly love the work you do with No Man. 
That was your first band. I mean, how did that all begin for you? That began because I was basically a multi-instrumentalist, but I had no confidence. Things have changed, obviously, but I had at the time I had no confidence in myself to be a singer. So I was always looking for distinctive singers. And Tim, I think we met through an advert in, in Melody Maker and uh-huh. he quoted some references that really appealed to me. I can't remember what they were. And I what did the ad say? Like what did the ad say? It would have been things like Blue Nile, Prefab Sprout and David Sylvian. Oh. Those kind of references were really important to me. I still are. So did you then sort of arrange to sort of have this blind date? Yeah, so we did. So he came down and he sang on a track I think I was doing for a compilation album and, and we just got talking and it was like, we got on like the proverbial house on fire. And we started doing, you know, music. And I remember the first session we ever did, we did this kind of ambient pop thing and then we did this avant-garde funk thing and then we did sort of gothic ballad. And he was the first person I think that I'd met that seemed to have no concept of genre like I did. Like I say, everyone else I worked at, you know, I kind of met at school and worked with as a musician or sort of, you know, got hooked up through local advertising. It was always one genre they wanted to play. Mm -hmm. And Tim was the first guy I'd met, like myself, that just didn't seem to have any concept of working within one genre. So we kind of bonded over that. You're right, because that is absolutely a thing when you're young, isn't it? I I have a thing and I need to find people who do this thing and then we'll do that thing. When you you started working together, did you have your four-track tape machine then? I think by then I'd because inv- I'd started working for a computer company and I was earning money and I'd invested in a in a sort of Tascam B sixteen I think is it Fostex yes, uh, or, I think Fostex, Fostex B sixteen yeah, what were you doing at a computer company yeah sorry was it proper computery work yeah it was proper computers I was in the role of technical support to the sales team that was selling computer systems to local authorities so we're talking like really really elaborate like half a million pound systems they would run their housing benefits and community charge as it was then systems and rate systems as it was then on yeah so i got involved in there so does that mean you're one of the first people who had to say have you tried turning it off and turning it back on again (laughs) i probably did say that with with no man you ended up joining forces with the amazing Mick Kahn from Japan and and Steve Jansen and Richard Barbieri. Wow. What was Mick like for a start? I mean, he's no longer with us now, sadly. One of the great, great bass players. Just one of the most naturally, extraordinarily unique and gifted musicians I've ever met. I mean, a complete non-musician in many respects. You know, That always stuns me about him. Yeah. Didn't know what notes were or anything. No, he had no idea. It is that idiot savant thing. He played music in a way that no musician would have played it. I mean, his bass lines, they're oh, so amazing. atonal. Yeah. They're very percussive and atonal. And of course, you have to remember he was from Cyprus. Right, yeah. So he has that kind of... And if you've ever listened to sort of Greek or Cypriot folk music, it's in these bizarre time yeah, signatures, yeah, 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 yeah. you know. And he had all that stuff going on too. He was a funny guy. I mean, you know, a real comedian... Complete opposite of what I think probably Japan fans thought he was like. They probably thought he was this intellectual that put on a kimono and sat cross-legged to eat his rice. And he was the complete opposite. He was a prankster and he was a lot of fun to hang out with. But right from early on, you were really good at picking up the phone and and finding mm. these people and getting great musicians into your camp. And you must have had the confidence then as well to think, yeah, they'll dig my work. Well, I was a fan. I mean, the truth is I was a fan and I reached out to these people because I loved what they did. And I realized that not a lot of people were doing that. You know, when Mick and Richard and Steve joined No Man, you'd think they'd be inundated with invitations. This is like 92, 93. You'd think they would have been inundated with invitations, but they weren't. Nobody was asking them to play on their records. And I guess that time it was all, you know, the Manchester yeah. scene and ambient house, yeah. bands like The Orb were taking off. And there wasn't <laughs> a lot of work for a bass player, a keyboard player and a drummer that sort of played this very kind of arty, you know, I don't know how you describe what they do. It's, that's one of the beauties of it. You can't describe what those guys do. So we were very fortunate to be able to get those people to work with us. Yeah, because you're right, there was that whole period where there was all those musicians and it's they used to go and do these tours and a lot of Japan, I mean, playing in Japan mm. and clubs. And it would and it was just, they took turns to say whose name it was. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Be, you know, it was David Silver or it was Mick Khan or it was whoever. And it were just various sort of configurations of the same musicians who'd all go out under each other's name. 
Yeah, in fact, I did a tour with them like that. I actually yeah. was a session guitar player for Jansen Barbieri Khan touring in Japan. It was exactly like that, as you say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were still wow. they were still massive in Japan. That is a scary job for someone who doesn't consider himself as a guitar player. Well, and I felt really inadequate to be honest. But I, I don't know. You know, I mean, it was it was I wasn't going to say no to it. But I mean, when you no. think of the sort of guitar players that they played with, people like David Rhodes and Robert Fripp and mm-hmm. Masami Suchir, if you know him, these extraordinary guitar players, and they wanted me, you know, and. Uh, well, it was definitely a baptism of fire. You know, it's probably not an experience I've ever repeated being a session player. And, and can I just, because uh, with all these bands, you don't sort of just leave them and move on. You, you sort of keep them all spinning like plates, don't you? So No Man still exists and you still occasionally come to work with Tim. I just want to direct people to the Schoolyard Ghosts album, which I think is mm. a great album. Yeah. If you don't oh, know you. No Man, go and listen to that one. And But you've just had a new album out as well. With I know Ash Stone's been playing drums on it, uh, Love You to Bits. I mean, when do you fit all this in? Well, you know, it's like, we, it's like going back to the beginning of the conversation. It's such an honour and a gift to be able to do what I do for a living. And I'm still a fan. You know, I still sometimes have to pinch myself. You know, we talked about these artists I've been remixing. You know, I kind of have to pinch myself sometimes that I am remixing, you know, songs from the big chair or, you know, Aqualung. And, and I'm hanging out with Robert and Andy Partridge and all these. And it's such an extraordinary gift my life has been as a professional musician. And I'm not a great musician. But, you know, I think I have a talent. I think I have something which is quite distinctive, at least I hope so. I think about music and I look at music in a way, partly because of the reasons we've discussed, you know, that idea of not really thinking in generic terms about music. I think I have found a little unique kind of niche for myself. And I just love making music and I still love making music. And every day I try to do something creative. Do you have a filter? Do you have that voice that's on your shoulder going, this isn't good. Or do you find that there's a confidence that you have now that you can you can pretty much all your work is is getting out there? No, increasingly I am slowing down. You know, I joked at the beginning. You know, you're talking about this 900 page discography, and I said I, I joked that I put out too many records, and I it wasn't actually entirely a joke. I do think I've put out things that I'd rather I hadn't, and I guess most musicians can say that, can't they? There's always something you you've released that you wish you hadn't. I put out too much stuff in the in my early part of my career, and, and some of them I'm not very proud of. Some of them I am proud of, and I am slowing down, and I'm trying to be a little bit more. You might say concerned with quality over quantity these days. There was a three year gap between the Future Bites and my previous solo record which yeah. is almost unheard of in my career actually so i am slowing down a bit now because yeah. one thing you've said this thing about the most successful musician you've never heard of and you've said the thing about not being put in front of people and i would actually argue that um that sort of your career is kind of the dream place you want to be and that you set out the albert hall and everything and you don't have that sort of massive public thing which is actually what all the big prog bands of the early 70s had they weren't in the papers Right. They weren't anyway, you know. Right. Led Zeppelin were the biggest band <laughs> in the world. If you could perfectly easily be the man in the street and have never heard of them. Right. You know, but they so still you're kind of in that space. <laughs> but they, but Led Zeppelin still sold millions of records, and I would love to sell millions of records, and I don't. You, you know. Yeah. I th- well, I no think, one sells millions of records. Anyway. Yeah, but you, well, no one you know, sells millions of records. That's true. You I th- sell out everything you ever do. I do okay. Yeah. I think there's always yeah. been that frustration because you know, going back to that time when I did have Prince posters on my wall, I was also in love with that dream, that pop dream. You know. Yeah. Of course. As I, mean, I, th- yeah. I think a lot of us kind of fall in love with that that magical idea of of being the pop star, being the rock star. I still have a little bit of that, and so there's always a frustration for me that I don't think my music is particularly difficult music I mean not all of it anyway some of it is but a lot of it is quite accessible you know Gary you came and sang on 12 Things I Forgot I thought that's just a you know very straightforward classy pop song Um, so there's still the frustration I I can't get those things on the radio and I can't get people to think of me as someone other than oh he's the guy that does the prog rock and we don't we don't play that on the radio well you had Elton John on your first big single off of Future Bites which was brilliant reading that wild wild shopping list yeah and I've never had a problem attracting musicians I mean that's great I have a lot of respect from other musicians so the problem has always been and listen I don't want you to think I've got a big chip on my shoulder about this but it is frustrating frustrating sometimes that there is this wall you know that it's very hard to break through and these days of course it's not radio it's getting your stuff streamed and on playlists on spotify and things like yeah. that that's well, how people that's the new radio isn't it as they say you see yeah. you see because you're in love with the 70s which you you know the, the medium yeah. was the vinyl lp and sorry. the 80s and, 70s and the and, 80s yeah yeah, yeah. 
And in those days, there were radio shows on Radio 1 that were devoted. To, you know, I remember on a Saturday, listening to Alan Freeman uh, playing yeah. Supper's Ready. It was seen as being a valid commercial you know this was pop music growing up mm. the 60s had gone that was when we were all kids suddenly we we're all adults and 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 it was it was something that an 11 year old self like me would would think nothing of buying you know difficult music if you like mm. it's slightly different now isn't it it's a but that is you gary that is you i mean, when i say that and, and in the same way as it's me and it's stephen yeah you know there's a very broad topic here because you have to sort of look at the impact the social media has had and the fact that now because people don't necessarily pay for music they're less invested in it both literally and metaphorically so they don't yeah. I mean I remember buying records when I was a kid and I hated it the first time I heard it but I'd spent money on it so I listened yeah. to it two yeah. three four five I mean buying Troutmaster Replica by Captain Beefheart it made no sense to me at least the first ten times I listened <laughs> to it but I'd spent like a load of money a shitload of money on it as an expensive yeah. American import and I kept yeah. listening to it and then I got it and now That's I love right. it and right. I don't I have albums like that yeah and I think now because all music is available and it's available essentially for free and also there's more music than ever than any other time in history in the world I but mean, there's also just more other things there's more other right. things we couldn't watch films in our bedroom right exactly there's nothing else you know the only, computer you know. gaming and all that stuff yeah yeah, yeah. So yeah but if you a, put a if you put vinyl on, if you do put that needle on the record, close the lid, sit down, look at the album sleeve, you're going to give a piece of music that might be 20 minutes long a lot more attention yeah, than sure. you would if you're listening to it on a thing you could skip easily. For sure. And I think that's because listening, the way people listen, the way people engage with music has changed because of, you know, first iPods and now streaming culture. And, you know, unfortunately, you, you know, you can't put the genie back in the bottle now. That's the way it no. is. Yeah. We have to talk about porcupine tree because that band was the band yeah. that really broke you and started yes. your career in a bigger way and i'm sort of interested in i don't want really to use the word loyalty but I, I i have um how did tim feel when you went oh tim i'm not going to be doing no man i'm going to be doing porcupine tree but don't worry just hang on in there or if your ambition and personal drive just keeps you moving all the time that's a very good question. The obvious answer to that is you'd have to ask Tim. But Tim, as you pointed out, is an extremely... He's a lovely guy. And he's never made me feel like he begrudged me that. And I suppose in a way also it, it kind of, you know, in a kind of oblique way, of course, also helped No Man. Because suddenly I had this audience that were looking around and saying, oh, what else does Stephen Wilson do? Oh, he does this thing called No Man. And so people have discovered No Man through the Porcupine Tree connection too. But how did it happen? How did you suddenly mm. decide, I'm going to create this other band? I was in a position because of No Man. We got our first record deal in 92 or 91 with a record label called One Little Indian. And I was able to give up my job. I was able to give up my job as a computer support person. And suddenly I had all this time to make music. And I'd invested in my own little studio and Tim wasn't always around. So I started doing these pastiches of the music that I'd gone back and discovered from the 60s and the 70s. So I remember doing pastiches of like, you know, Amagama period, Pink Floyd and Soft Machine and Gong. And I was doing all this kind of just for fun. And I put it all together on a cassette one day and I gave a few copies to a few friends and believing honestly that no one was interested in that kind of music. I mean, we're talking 92, 93. I thought no one was interested in that music at that time. And I was wrong. And I realized I was wrong. And actually, there was a lot of people out there that were desperate for that kind of music. And Mark Radcliffe's on his Radio 1 show started playing this yeah. one song called Radioactive Toy over and over and over again. And it just went from there. But you, but you, who did you go to to start the band, or was it only your project? Were you just the making first it on three, your own? Yeah, the first three records, it's just me. And in fact, I only put a band together when it got to the point where I couldn't ignore playing live any longer. I had to go out if I wanted it to sort of go to the next level. I had to put a band together, and I reached out to people that I knew, people like Richard Barbieri, who I knew also loved that mm. kind of you know seventies thing too, because he'd grown up with it too. And I just reached out to people I already knew that I thought would be sympathetic to what I was doing, and that was the first lineup of that band. And that is that still is that will that still go or Pokemon Tree? Yeah, it's still around. Yeah, yeah, it's but, still around. Because you did the Albert Hall in 2016, didn't you? Did you not? You did two nights, I think. Pokemon Tree. We haven't played live since 2010, as things stand at the moment. Okay. But um, uh, I've done the Royal Albert Hall many times. It's my favourite venue, and I've been very, you know, flattered. I'm pretty sure you were in there doing something in 2016. Probably. When there, yeah. When I was there, because when I was doing a run with David Gilmore, and we had to move out oh, two nights and move right. back in. 
I do remember that, yeah. Yeah, yeah we did. So our crew hate you. Yeah, oh, well, that's good. They're not the only ones, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Well, the first time I did the Albert Hall, it was in the middle of a run of Cliff Richard shows. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I remember stealing the Cliff Richard set list from the dressing room to give to my mum, who was well chat. But, yeah. <laughs> but St- Stephen, yeah. that's actually where I met you. I met you when I went back. Cliff Richard? At, you know, no. No. <laughs> that would be cool Gilmore's if that was show, true. At, that's Gilmore right. Show, I, that's I was right. backstage and. Phil Manzanera introduced me to you. That's right, and, yeah. And, and that, that, was, that was our first connection. That's right. Um, and you didn't, didn't know who I was, did me. you? You didn't know who didn't I was? Didn't me. I don't know whether I did fully know who you were. I, you hadn't entered my world. But bless you, within a week, <laughs> you'd gone out and bought my record and you tweeted or something saying, I've just discovered Stephen Wilson and this is... Re-, and that was really lovely. Because so few people do that. You know, so few people, they meet somebody, oh, I'm a musician, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'll check out your stuff. And they don't really mean it, but you really did. So that was amazing. Yeah, you know, I f- I'm constantly hungry, for, but I felt embarrassed that, you know, given your history of Porcupine Tree, that I wasn't really fully aware of your career. And, you know, I think it's fair to say, this is kind of the point that Guy was saying, that, that it's very hard to come out from your little niche nowadays, you know and become public property as it were. it's fascinating to me you know we, we've talked a lot about you know progressive rock and although I'm quite ambivalent about being lumped in with that if I kind of concede that I am obviously I do come from that tradition it's the one musical form that has never been rehabilitated you know partly you think of bands like Radiohead they're kind of prog although they would never admit it so but you think almost mm. every other kind of music has been rehabilitated in, in the eyes of, of the media except progressive rock it's still seen as very much persona non grata in you know in mainstream media terms it's seen as something that belongs in a little niche in a little backwater and that has been a constant frustration to me you know and having been doing this now for 30 years there are people still people that are at the very heart of the music industry that have still never heard of me or anything I've done which blows my mind in a way. Well, I think the problem is for people who don't know it, if you say, you know, prog rock, then people just see wizards and elves. Yeah, which is ridiculous, really. That comes back to that Floyd thing. The Floyd, arguably the most successful progressive rock band of all time, never had that. You know, their music was always about um, inner space, not outer space. It was always about, you know, the human condition. And there was, I suppose early on, there was a bit of a sci-fi aspect to the Sid Barrett stuff and that, but set the controls for that. But certainly the famous records, they're very much about the world that we live in, aren't they? And even the covers, they never had those kind of Roger Dean covers. They always had that kind of very intellectually cool Storm Thorgerson stuff. And that was always what appealed to me about progressive. I was less of... You know, I know you're a big fan of Genesis, Gary. I was never a big fan of Genesis, really. It was always Floyd, King Crimson for me, the sort of more cerebral stuff in a way. But then also, they've got these artists like Kate Bush, who could also tick some of those boxes. You know, musicians that, you know, the musicianship, the the depth, the... The vertical complexity. <laughs> vertical yeah. complexity. complexity. But, but so, in fact, in retrospect, so much of 80s music fits the bill, you know? I mean, yeah. again, if you listen yeah. to an album like Colour of Spring by Talk Talk, or you listen to an album like Definitely. Seeds Definitely. of Love by Tears for Fears or Mezzanine by Massive Attack, it's very much in the tradition of weighty conceptual, let's not use the word progressive, conceptual rock music it's all there it's all there when you suddenly decided you wanted to be a solo artist uh, what was the difference for you between porcupine tree and when you did is it insurgentes is that how you pronounce it your first album you're or? pretty close it's, you... it's insurgentes which is the the spanish I, I i did a lot of interviews around the time is that I... spanish for vertical complexity <laughs> <laughs> guess what it's spanish for no but um i remember doing interviews at the time and being inf- interviewed by american djs bless them and they were pronouncing it insurgentes insurgentes anyway um insurgentes yeah i mean that that was my first solo record and it was really because i wanted to explore a side of my musical personality that the other guys wouldn't have been into. You know, you guys have been in bands, you know what it's like. You you kind of, you're this kind of gestalt entity where you have to find the little area in the middle of the Venn diagram where you all agree, that's mm-hmm. what we want to play. Yeah. And so you might have one guy that's really into jazz fusion, another guy that's really into dub music and another guy that's really into death metal. But that doesn't come into the equation because 
none of the other guys are into that so you get this little area in the middle which is the sound of the band and that's great because that's what gives the band its identity and that's what gives it such a strong unique quality but I think as a songwriter there's always that frustration you know I want to I want to explore these other things too so that was what led me to sort of making that first solo record and I love doing it and then at that point I never wanted to look back again really and you travelled on one of them did you which one did you do when you a sort of peripatetic recording sessions in South America and That's Central right. America. Yeah, so that was places. in Sahenti's. So I travelled to... Me- I, I just went on the road with Lasse, my film guy, and we just filmed me going around the world recording in Mexico and Tel Aviv and we went to Scandinavia and just had fun, made it into a, a little bit of a road trip, really, yeah. You're so many diverse session players and some of this stuff, you know, you were doing in the early days when you, you didn't have much money. Are you just great at getting people to play for you? Or is it really... I mean, these sound like expensive uh, projects. I've always found that the bigger the musician, well, obviously with some exceptions, the bigger the musician, the less likely they are to want to care about getting paid. I mean, you know, I won't name names, but people have done sessions for me you'd think would be able to command enormous session fees, and they've done it for nothing. And I think that, you know, part of it is because they do have a respect for what I do, which is very flattering. And so they don't charge me, you know, and, and that's how I've been able to get some of these people involved on the records. Yeah. Everyone loves to play on good stuff. It's as simple as that, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. So the future for you now, Stephen, is it is Porcupine Tree going to ever come back now, do you think? Or is it, are you just happy to carry on with the, with the solo? With the 19 things you've got. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, listen, Porcupine Tree is a very special thing to me. I'm sure we're going to make another record. I'm sure we'll make another record. Gavin is off now playing with King Crimson. So he's like the MD of, of the... Gavin Harris and the drummer is like the yeah. MD. You probably know that band has a three-drummer lineup now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah, is, yeah, which is yeah. incredible. Yeah. So Gavin is like the MD of that band. Richard is, is doing his own solo stuff. And, uh, you know, obviously I've been very busy. So, we've, you know, we've all diversified and done other things. You know, if you look at my career, particularly what I've done over the last few years, I do everything I can to try and make people aware that, I, that I'm not this you know, just doing prog, you know, I do other things too. Sometimes I maybe overcompensate for that too, you know, I don't know, anyway. We spoke about it briefly earlier, but I just want to know, how did you approach Elton John? So I approached him through Merck. Do you, you know Merck Mercuriadis? He's, he's a friend uh, yeah. of mine. And Merck, yeah. as you probably know, has been involved with almost everyone over the years. But one of the people he used to manage, along with Guns N' Roses, was Elton. And... I told him the concept for this song, Personal Shop, and I said, do you think Elton would do it? And he said, to be honest, it's exactly the kind of thing Elton would find really fun to do. You know, I'm basically asking Elton to read this list of, the shopping it's list, brilliant. you know, in the middle yeah, of the song. You know, fantastic. so I'm not asking him to sing or play Over the piano. fantastically electro. Yeah. Listening to that, I mean, that's something that you, you can imagine hearing kind of a rave in Anjuna or something. It's like full on trance. But that's his Donna Summer background, obviously. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. It's something you exactly could have done. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you're absolutely right. It's totally kind of an homage to going back to growing up with listening to those Giorgio Moroder records, you know, the Donna mm-hmm. Summer, the disco symphonies, as I was used to think of them. And I had this idea that somebody famous would read that shopping list in the middle of the song. I didn't know who for a while. And then I went to see Rocket Man. You've probably seen the movie. At the end of the movie, yeah, there's yeah. that kind of where are they now sequences. There isn't a lot of these movies. And Elton's thing comes up and it's says Elton John by the in the meantime has kicked all his habits except one and there was a picture of him with all the shopping with all these Gucci bags yeah, yeah exactly and it was like this light bulb moment I thought of course this is the most famous living shopper on the planet this <laughs> this is too good to not happen and I knew it was a long shot but actually Merck told me look I think the, and then the next day Merck called me and he said Elton's ringing you in 10 minutes at which point I shat myself you know and wow. 10 minutes later, I got this phone call. Sure enough, a phone call from Antibes in the south of France. And I thought, okay, that must be Elton John. I don't know anything. anyone else that lives in Antibes. And I answered the phone and he said, hello, Stephen, this is Elton John. I fucking love your song. Let's do it. Honestly, one of the greatest moments of my professional career, as you can imagine. Yeah. Having grown up. How you did know, you do it? Did he, where, where did you do it? I mean, this all happened during lockdown, as you can imagine. Oh, so right. he, okay. he does his Rocket Man podcast. So he recorded it at one of his recording sessions when he was doing his podcast, I think. Did he do it to the track or did he just give you a chopping list? Um, he gave me a few readings and I chopped it up and put it together the way I wanted it, yeah. You sold one of the copies of this album, Future Bites, for £10,000, didn't you? Yes. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, the whole 
kind of idea of the Future Bites was to present the album in the way that a new sort of high concept designer fashion item would be i became really fascinated in that whole kind of virgil abloh thing you know making the brick with the, the limited edition brick with the serial number mm-hmm. and selling them for 300 nfts hadn't started at that point, this is even pre-nfts yeah but that whole thing about if it's got the right logo on it the world is your oyster you know you can name your own price and people will buy into it and the funny thing is those things hold their value anyway you know you buy a brick for 300 quid you can sell it for a grand you know the day after because it's a virgil <laughs> abloh brick you know and mm-hmm. i was I was fascinated with that whole word and, I, and I've always loved that idea of the world of art. You know, it's all about the, the single item, isn't it? You know, the world we live in, it's about recording an album and then you make however many copies of it you need and every copy is an exact du- duplicate of itself. But the world of art is on is based on a completely different concept, isn't it? The idea is the painter makes one copy or the sculptor makes one copy. It's the thing. And they sell it at a premium price to a collector. At an arbit- arbitrary price, that's the thing. It seems very arbitrary sometimes, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I was fascinated by that idea. What, you know, How could that be analogous with the world of, of music? And actually, I'm not the first person to do it. Jean-Michel, Jean-Michel Jarre. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Did yeah. in the 80s. And Wu-Tang Clang made a record which they sold for a million dollars. One copy. They sold it to, for a million dollars. To Farmer Bro, to the guy who's That's in jail. right. That's right. He's in jail now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I was fascinated by that. And it kind of, you know, it, it was part of the concept in a way. And so I thought it would be great to do it. And all the proceeds went to the venue, the music venue trust. So it was in it for a good cause. And, and I tried to... It was to, in a box, wasn't it? Was it was in a box. Nice. It was unique. I felt like I had this real responsibility to make it value for money. So I put one of my Grammy nomination medals in there and a Grammy certificate. I put some handwritten lyrics in there. I put a seven inch vinyl single, which I pressed one copy, <laughs> which I recorded, I which I recorded what the song for. What else can I put in? I've got this bogey ball from when I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> And the fan that bought it, he seemed really happy with it, you know, and he, you know, he, he spent a lot of money on it, but he made a video, an unboxing video of it and everything. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> absolutely amazing. You were frustrated, obviously, you couldn't play live on this album. What's happening? Are you yeah. going to get back on the road? Well, I don't know. It seems to be like, I mean, you guys are going on too soon, aren't you? Uh, next year. Oh, not till next year. At the moment, yeah. it still seems to be a very, a very much situation of should we or shouldn't we? You know, it's very unclear. I know festivals are doing really well, but I think some individual shows are not doing so well still. So it's. Oh, it's interesting. Yes, I don't know. I mean, my personal belief, and it's it's kind of a depressing uh, way to look at it. I think it's going to take years for the the live circuit to recover, completely recover. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe this time next year. I'm, I've cancelled two tours. I had a tour for last October and I was supposed to be on the road now also. And I cancelled this tour too, which is the right thing to do for sure. I don't, I really don't know. In the meantime, you're making music, right? It's the only thing I can do. Sit in the studio, remixing, writing, you know, whatever, whatever work comes. My Dolby Atmos has become a big thing over the last year. When you came to studio, my studio, Gary, you heard a Dolby Atmos mix. So oh, right. yeah, it was yeah. 5.1, but now it's Dolby Atmos, which is 7.1.4. For people who don't know, that's you have speakers above you. I was meant to be doing something at a Dolby Atmos room launch at Real World a few weeks ago, which got cancelled because of COVID. Right. So it's yeah. a lot of fun to hear. I mean, I got into it when I heard Abbey Road at Abbey Road in Atmos just before lockdown and I was blown away and I thought well I have to get myself kitted out with this did Giles do that yeah Giles did that yeah Yeah. and I was very lucky I got it all together just before lockdown and then of course Apple adopted Dolby Atmos and it's just gone crazy now people want they no longer ask for 5.1 they ask for Atmos now Mm. so does that mean you're going to go back to Aqualung and the Yes catalogue and redo them all in Dolby Atmos well possibly this is never ending it's never ending I've done in the court of the Crimson King in Atmos having done it in 5.1 10 years ago um, so but Atmos yeah, works without special equipment, doesn't it? Yes. Kind of so yeah, exactly. So that's the advantage Atmos has over five point one mm. is it does decode through headphones and it does decode through sound bars. Yeah. Stephen, Brilliant. it's been a pleasure having you on. Yes, it's been fantastic. Well, thank you so much, guys. It's been a pleasure too. Because I know Guy's got to go off because he's doing another pod. <laughs> is he? What a tart! Blimey! For a competitor, I absolutely. Oh, no. I know it's podcast. It's all I've done for the last two years. It's what I do. Podcast. Well, I started a podcast <laughs> in lockdown too. So with Tim, the album years one. So, you know, I've been. Doing I, it I too. did plug into that actually. It's fantastic. It's for fun. Who's, yeah, who's it's not fun. heard it. 
Yeah. Yes, Stephen, I'm going to come round to your beautiful studio garage thing you have in your house and visit you and, uh, and listen to some more fantastic music. Please do. Um, I want to. I want to. You're more than welcome, Guy. We'll come together. I'm just trying to think yes. if there's anything that That'd you've nice. played on, Guy, that I've mixed in. I don't, I'm not sure that, because you're, you're on Elemental, aren't you? But you're not on Seeds of Love, or are no, you? No, I'm on Elemental. You're on Elemental, yeah. yeah. I'm still hoping yeah. we might get to do that one in Surround. Love that oh, record. Great. Love that record. Yeah. Love that record, yeah. Yeah, it's good. I'm only on one song. I'm only on half of it as well. It's a great but, song, though. Thanks for yeah. coming on, Stephen, and, and stay yeah, in thank touch. Thank you so much. And, My pleasure, and good guys. Luck with all the new music. Thank you very yeah, much, guys, and vice brilliant. versa. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Bye now. So, off guy goes into the distance to do his other pod. <laughs> I don't know what I think of that. I hope he's not going to fall in love with someone else. I just want to say thank you for listening. Uh, it was a joy to have Stephen on. We will be back next week with another great star from the world of rock. Until then, it's good night from me. And it's, well, he's gone. Good night from him. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.